Conversely, if you bet Dallas minus three, it moves up to three and a half. You've done your job, regardless of whether that wins or loses. Because in the long run, when you start to take a sample of thousands, thousands of bets, you're going to come out ahead uh, with, with the market agreeing with you. So I think that's a, just a huge differentiator between a pro and, and a, a casual better. Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com and part of Blue Wire Hustle. I'm Matt Landis, and this week's conversation is with professional sports better Rob Pizzola. In this conversation, we get into Rob's background, including his journey in betting. In addition to handicapping the NFL, Rob's a rare public hockey handicapper, so we touch on how he views this one-of-a-kind NHL season as it hits the home stretch. We also dive into betting media, where Rob's a driving force for transparency and accountability. And to that end, we touch on Rob's recent decision to join BetStamp, the sports betting tracking platform and odds comparison tool built by people who bet on sports every day. So we talk about Rob's decision to join the team at BetStamp and what he hopes to accomplish there. And last but not least, we wrap up with Rob's advice to aspiring sports bettors and betting content creators, as well as some high-quality craft beer talk to take things home. If that sounds good, I'd appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would also be incredibly helpful. I'm all ears on any feedback, as well as any topics you'd like to hear me cover in the worlds of betting and beer. One more housekeeping item, if you're looking to supplement Rob's Hockey Insights with some additional information to help form your hockey betting portfolio, check out Dimers.com where you can find daily NHL picks. And on that note, it's time to drop the puck. Enjoy my interview with professional sports better Rob Pizzola. Rob Pizzola, welcome to Props and Hops. This is the show's first interview taking place beyond international borders. It feels like the world's getting smaller every day now. Thanks so much for joining, and how are things going for you in Toronto? Uh, Things are okay. I mean, we're obviously experiencing some of the effects of COVID right now, but uh, summer's around the corner here. Weather's starting to get nicer, so hopefully people can get their second vaccinations and we can try to get back to normal uh, as soon as possible and just enjoy this summer season. Yeah, I know um, I'm in the L.A. area. Same thing, just fingers crossed for a, a more proper summer. Definitely going to be um, more than what we got last year. So encouraging to see things moving in the right direction, and hopefully we can just keep it going that way. And uh, I'd love to use this conversation to dive in on a bunch of things. You have such a wealth of knowledge I'm excited to share. But first off, just to set the stage for some of our listeners, I'd love to touch on your background and you're the first professional better that we've had a chance to bring onto the show. So I'd love it if you could describe your journey in betting and, and maybe to start all the way back to the beginning, what's the first bet that you can remember placing? Yeah, I would say definitely I'm a, a professional better by fluke. And when I kind of get into my background, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit. But uh, I remember I first started betting when I was in high school. Um, and pretty much the first several years that I was betting, I was basically losing a lot of money. Uh, you know, I was working a, a, a minimum wage job at a, a retail shop and, um, pretty much putting that towards gambling losses at the time, uh, which is, I think a lot of, um, 
the initial experience for for a lot of people who end up betting on sports. Uh, the first bet I remember making, I I can't tell you exactly what the bet was, but I can remember the night that I got my first betting account, uh, which was I literally met up with a guy in an alleyway uh, who was a couple years older than me, who would be what's called an agent now, uh, who literally handed me a business card of this is the website, this is your account number, and this is your password. I go home. I remember placing some bets for a Monday night football game. If if I had to guess, I think it was an Eagles-Rams game, and this would have been uh, somewhere in the 2005 uh, range, early 2000s, somewhere around there. But I don't remember the exact bet. I remember losing that night. Uh, very clearly, but that was my first experience into it. And uh, I guess over time, you you kind of just reach a point where you're like, well, I'm not winning at this. I'm not really having fun. Like at first it was fun in terms of like a recreational type of thing, enjoy the game a little bit more, but over time you just don't really like losing money. So for me, it was, uh, I was studying statistics and computer science in university. So I kind of just started saying to myself, well, can I apply these principles to sports in any way? Uh, and it didn't really happen overnight. It actually took literally half a decade uh, for me to like start refining models and really figure out that I had something that was worthwhile uh, to the point where I was able to eventually leave a full-time job and just start doing this as a profession, betting on sports. So it was quite an evolution uh, with a lot of growing pains along the way. Yeah, I love the transparency there because sometimes the the stories that people might hear from certain figures in the industry, it just seems like, oh, this is easy. And and if you just do these few steps, then you'll be good to go from day one. But there is a grind involved. And if you can really embrace it and, and just put in some good, thoughtful work, there is plenty of upside. So along those lines, what was it like when you started to realize that you might be ready to go pro? And what was it like making that decision? So I, I never really realized it. And if I, if I give some background on how I went pro, uh, there's a couple things that happened, but I was working for a company called the score, which is a pretty major sports media company in North America, but originally uh, Toronto based company originally only operated in Canada. Now with the regulation that's happening in the U S they're operating a sports book in the U S as well in some individual States, but I was working for that company. And this was right at the time that daily fantasy sports was exploding. Um, and I was playing on DraftKings and FanDuel and some smaller sites and I was making a lot of money in the early stages. Um, and the score at that time wanted to launch their own daily fantasy site. Um, and I was a product manager within the score at the time and they were putting me on that project. So I basically helped them build out a DFS site and a couple weeks before we were about to go live, they issued a memo, memo internally to all employees saying, internal employees are not going to be allowed to play DFS on other sites anymore. Because at this time, uh, there were some stories in the industry about people using analytics within their own sites, whether that's DraftKings or FanDuel, to benefit on other sites. And the score didn't want to be involved in any controversy like that. So that was the first time where I really agonized over, am I going to give up DFS, which is booming for me right now, or am I going to give up this job? Um, and... I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And luckily I had the blessing for my wife to, to pursue this. So that's when I quit my full-time job to pursue DFS. And then slowly over time, the edge in DFS started eroding. And I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I can sustain a living anymore just off daily fantasy. So I started pivoting to sports modeling. 
um, taking the models I was producing at a player level and just applying it at a team level. And I have a pretty large following on Twitter and I did at that, that time as well. Um, and I started posting my probabilities on a daily basis to Twitter. And I only did this for like a month, a month and a half or so before I got randomly messaged by someone saying, Hey, you're posting your baseball numbers every single day to Twitter. Somebody's betting them immediately as soon as you post them. And it's affecting our ability to, to get down. And this was a, a larger group that was betting games. So they basically said to me, you know, we'll offer you, um, a free roll at the time. We'll basically give you this amount of a bet on baseball games as long as you don't pro- post the probabilities anymore. That was the first time that I really recognized that I was like, I had something worthwhile because I was betting games, but I wasn't really putting a lot of money into it. It was not something I was comfortable like risking all of my capital on at that point. But for someone else who's already a professional to kind of re- reach out to you and say, hey, you're hurting our ability to win because you're also winning, it, it really gives you that confidence that you need. So I started getting free rolled and then eventually accumulated enough of a bankroll where I could start taking on a lot more of my own risk. And it just kind of developed over time to where I grew in confidence. I grew in uh, capital and, and I guess my risk tolerance grew as well. Yeah, I love that. That's such a deep look into what the journey can look like and, and getting that big, maybe light bulb moment of somebody reaching out to you to, you know, try to keep things a little bit more secretive so that they could get down for themselves and in a way that, that could benefit you along your path to succeeding as a pro better as well. I appreciate that insight. And to that end, would you say there's anything that stands out if I'm to throw something at you? Like what's one of the biggest things that separates pro betters from amateur betters having gone from the frequent losing early on to where you are today? Is there anything that's really shifted the trajectory of your journey in betting? Yeah, I think it's understanding what you're looking for in order to win. Um, right, like the, the vast majority of professional bettors are going to put a, a high deal of, uh, or large stock into what's called closing line value. Whereas a recreational or casual type better probably doesn't even know what that concept is. But sports betting, just like if you were investing in a stock market or any other market, it, it is a market. You're, you know, there's this, this notion of, you're competing against the sports book because the sports book setting the lines and that's who you're betting with. And that's kind of true, but they're setting their lines based off of everyone's action. You're competing with other people in the market to get the best prices possible, essentially. So for me, that was a concept that the first 10 years of betting, I had no idea what closing line value was and my bet timing would be very poor. So it would be like whenever I had free time, I'd go and play some bets, maybe 10 minutes before a game started. And when you start to realize that your best chance for success in the long run is to get the best of the number, then it really changes the way that you think about sports and the way that you time your bets and when you're betting on things. So that's, I think, the biggest differentiator, I think, between a professional and, and a recreational um, better. And just to expand on that, when I'm talking about closing line value, it's it's you want the market to to work in your favor. Um, like if you're betting the Dallas Cowboys minus three and the number moves to minus two, you've made a bad bet, regardless of when to, whether it wins or not, because there's a lot of people that are betting into this market with a lot of money that are saying, ah, the true probability of this game is really closer to two than it is three. Conversely, if you bet Dallas minus three, it moves up to three and a half. 
you've done your job, regardless of whether that wins or loses. Because in the long run, when you start to take a sample of thousands, thousands of bets, you're going to come out ahead uh, with, with the market agreeing with you. So I think that's just a huge differentiator between a pro and, and a, a casual better. Yeah, that point really resonates with me. One of the things that I've preached on this show from the outset is the line that the process is the result. And that comes from Annie Duke, a former professional poker player in her book, Thinking in Bets. And yeah, in the long run, if you're beating the closing line, then you're probably going to win. And if you're not, then it's probably going to catch up with you. And to that end, I know a recent guest on the show, Drew Dinsick, has talked about it in different media appearances or his own podcast. He kind of knows if he if he beats the closing line, then he's got a shot to win. And if he doesn't beat it, he pretty much knows that it's likely not in the cards. And as recently as the NFL draft, I, I think I had a little more than a dozen bets and it was, it was good. I think if you're paying attention to things, the NFL draft is a pretty strong betting opportunity every year, but you know, I, I got a little bit ambitious when um, I thought Justin Fields had some value to go number three, and it was more just line shopping. I saw at one point he was plus 15 at one book, and he was heavily favored everywhere else, so just trying to take a lead on that. But, you know, when when the market swung, I kind of knew by the time the draft started, that pick wasn't going to win. There were a few others where, even though the draft was good overall, you kind of know, okay, if you're not going to beat the closing line, then those bets probably won't come through. So that's a small anecdote, but I think it's illustrative of the larger point that you just brought up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's not like the be-all and end-all. There's times where you won't beat the closing line and you're going to win your bet or or vice versa. Like, you know, there is variance in sports. As a lot of people don't realize that. You could do everything right and still lose over the course of a month or two months. Uh, and that happens to me. Like, I don't win every single week. I don't win every single month. Uh, I've gone through prolonged losing stretches, which... I mean, you can, you start to reevaluate things, but you, you sort of just have to, to trust the process. And in the long run, as long as you're getting good numbers, uh, you, you will succeed. I'm, I'm very confident in that. So, um, yeah, it's, it, the draft is a great example. I mean, you look at the movement on Trey Lance on, on draft night for the third overall pick and a lot of people, you know, they, they don't pay attention to that kind of stuff, right? They just see the guy that they think is going to go third overall, uh, numbers increasing and they're willing to put money down, but, the market is very powerful. When stuff like that happens and you see major moves in markets like that, uh, you really have to pay attention to it. Yeah, and it can take a lot of time to pay attention to all these things. And I bring that up because I know that you don't just handicap one sport. You do a lot. You're a rare public hockey handicapper. And I'm curious about how you decide to focus your time and energy as well as how to juggle multiple sports. What does that process look like? Ooh, um, I guess it's evolved over the course of the years. Cause when I first started doing this, it was more so I need to do every sport all at once. Um, which I did. And some were obviously more successful than others, but that is a huge grind as well. Um, I, I like to focus on specific sports, which are mainly hockey and football. Um, because the seasons don't overlap a whole lot. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I, I work with a partner, so that helps alleviate a lot of it as well. But I think when you start incorporating so many things at once, at least for me, uh, I find it difficult to keep up with that. So I'd, I'd rather be a specialist, I guess, than, um, a generalist, so to speak. And that's just my personal preference. Uh, but one thing that I've learned over the years is mental health is very important as well. And when you're in front of a computer for 12, 14, 16 hours a day, 
for every day of the year. And like you, you can't even skip family functions or, or, or you do skip family functions because you have like 15 baseball games and 15 hockey games and 15 NBA games on the same day. It takes its toll on you as well. So, um, I've kind of dialed it back over the years that where it's probably hurt me in terms of my, uh, total gain. Uh, but it's also like prolonged my, my life and made me happier as a person. So I think there's a lot of factors that just go into it. And, uh, for me, it was burnout, frankly, it, it went from, I, I love all these sports, but I can't do all of these. Well, let me just focus on what my best performing sports are, um, and just do those really well. And, um, I don't, I don't regret that at all. Yeah. As you say that, I can't help, but think of, um, probably the best person that I've ever had the good fortune of knowing. And that would be the betting legend, David Malinsky, Mm -hmm. who passed away a few years ago, but we had a chance to work together a bit um, during his final couple years. And he once sent me a text message that resonated so strongly, um, basically saying it takes a full spectrum to make the proper life portfolio. And that kind of stopped me in my tracks because here was a guy who was the sharpest betting mind that I've ever come across. And whether it's handicapping a game, handicapping the market, finding the best number, a lot of things that you've touched on, he was masterful in those areas. But he also knew everything there was to know about the bristlecone pines on Mount Charleston, high above the Las Vegas Valley. And he was an avid Bruce Springsteen fan and knew everything about classic rock. He supported seemingly every local mom-and-pop restaurant uh, he was a connoisseur when it came to beer and wine and spirits. And just seeing that somebody who operated at such a high level when it came to betting wasn't beholden to just that one walk of life was really powerful. So I think what you're saying, um, you know, might be the most important thing for anybody to take away from this conversation. Um, and sometimes being able to walk away and get away from the screen and clear your head a little bit can actually sharpen your mind and your eye quite a bit when you get back into it. So um, definitely want to strongly agree with, you know, any focus that we can encourage people to take on important things in life beyond the betting boards, as fun as that can be at times. Yeah. I, um, I knew Dave Malinsky as well. Um, when I first came on the sports media scene in, in Canada, when I was in my early twenties, um, I used to talk to Dave pretty much every week. I, I've met him in person a few times before he passed as well. And, um, all the stuff that you're saying really, um, hits home with me. You know, I, I'm not a, um, a proponent of buying picks or anything like that. And, and, and Dave was a pick seller, but, um, in terms of just like genuinely nice people, um, really focused on like what matters in front of them. Um, he was great. And I remember he actually had a home up in Canada that he used to go to probably once a year for about a month and just kind of recharge and get off the grid. And, um, I, I learned a lot from, from Dave in general and, um, his demeanor just, really good person. Yeah, absolutely. And I was a little bit late to the game, I guess. I I didn't come across him through selling picks. Um, It was when he was writing his point blank column. Um, I read that regularly, both when it was at pregame.com as well as sportsbookreview.com. And part of the bigger takeaway beyond specific picks, which um, generally when he would share picks, they worked quite well in my experience, but more about teaching somebody how to think versus just giving out picks now and then the thought process is something that, you know, has continued to outlast his life. And I think there's, there's a lot of wisdom that he had that by virtue of not being bound to the screen 24 seven, when he was dialed in on it, 
he could operate as well as anybody. And when he wasn't, it was to your point, kind of just recharging while also enjoying other things in life. So I, I love and appreciate that you brought that up. And I definitely want to circle back to that in a little bit as part of your decision to join Betstamp. You touched on that in an announcement you made when joining the team. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into that part of the conversation, just to uh, stick with some of the nuts and bolts of betting, if you will, um, I know that we're heading down the home stretch of the regular season in the NHL. And this has been anything but a normal season. But I'm wondering if there's been anything big that you've taken away from this season that has helped to shape your approach to hockey from a betting perspective. Um, probably the opposite. If, if I'm being honest, I, I'm probably going to go into this offseason and forget that this season existed because it was such an anomaly that I don't think any of the, uh, you know, I've already started thinking about game one of next season, next year. How am I going to model these teams um, when they've all, when the NHL this year has essentially been four separate leagues instead of one league? Because the same teams are playing each other over and over. And if we're just using data of from this season with those teams playing each other, a lot is going to get lost in the shovel shuffle. So um, this has certainly been an experience for me. I, I doubt I'll ever experience anything like this again because um, I, I'm just very unaccustomed to like 50% of my bets being affected by some sort of news later on in the day. And then the, I guess the devil's advocate would say to me, well, you know, why are you betting early in the morning um, when you know that there's a possibility of news working against you later in the day? And it's because it's a very competitive market. If I don't bet in the morning, somebody else is going to take out that number and I'm going to be left with scraps later on in the day. So it's been frustrating from that perspective to just have so much news affecting games later on in the day. But going forwards, um, I think it was a good experience for me just in general this year because there's been way more adaptation than there would be in a regular pre-COVID hockey season where it's kind of like just a very robotic okay, I'm going to run my lines on a game and then bet it and there's not really much else going on. Whereas this year, I've had so many things going through my head from watching these games and trying to like adapt. Um, and it's been kind of crazy and, and a little bit overwhelming in a sense, but the the reality is the vast majority of uh, of things that I've learned this year probably only apply to this season only and are not going to give me some sort of prolonged impact in the future. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts come to mind as you explain that. I think it's it makes a lot of sense, and it sounds like a very valid thought process. One thing that I try to remind myself, if I see value on a line early, knowing, especially going back to this past football season, things could change at any moment. I mean, if you're betting Sunday afternoon openers and you don't know what's going to come up in the next basically week, there's a lot of variance in play, but... You know, the example that I would hear, if I bet early, somebody might say, oh, my gosh, you just bet on the Chiefs. What if Mahomes tests positive? Then you're screwed. It's like, yeah, but what if the other team's quarterback tests positive? Then I have a great bet. It's when we don't know. um, I mean, maybe it's not exactly 50-50, but it it kind of is splitting hairs to argue that it's not. Um, Something could swing against you in a big way. Something could swing for you in a big way, and things might more or less net out the same. So if you see a good number – you probably are better off more often than not just taking it when it's there. To your point, if you wait, maybe there's a chance that by waiting you have more information and can dodge some bad news, but you're also almost for sure passing on the best available number barring some major events. 
And then on top of that, you're going to be in a race to get down as fast as possible, which is what's happening a lot with the NHL this year with news that's breaking in the afternoon or, or, or in the early evening before game starts. Um, if, if you can't react to that news within 10, 15, 20 seconds, the number's gone anyway. So, um, it, it's been a, a, a definitely a, what I call a unicorn year just because it, it's, it's not a traditional hockey season in the sense that the games are not playing out like they traditionally would in general. Um, but on top of that, the process doesn't play out um, because typically if I, if I went back to pre COVID you'd kind of have your, your early rush in the morning where limits go up and everybody's betting. Then you'd have your morning skates where all the teams are on the ice. Beat reporters were always at practice for both teams and there would be a lot of beat reporters at practice. So there'd be a lot of news available from those practices. And then you just have like this dead period in the afternoon where nothing else happens. Whereas this year, you get a lot of leakage of information in the afternoon. You get a lot of coaches coming out after practice saying, we have several game time decisions tonight. We don't know what the lineup is going to look like. There's teams that won't confirm their goalies. And not only do they not confirm their goalies, they're actually throwing the beat reporters off the scent by using them both in practice. So it's been one of those where you really have to pay attention this year uh, and be ready to react fairly quickly to any piece of news. Yeah, and continuing with that thread, the other thought that I had a couple minutes ago was with this being a unicorn season, as you laid out, we do have the Stanley Cup playoffs right around the corner. And as we look at that right now, I'm wondering, not necessarily, again, trying to get you to divulge picks or tip your hand, but more about thinking through the process like a professional better would. Is there anything you're looking for in terms of betting value or any food for thought as we approach the playoffs? Yeah, I, I do this throughout the year, but it's, it's no different than someone who's trading stocks or crypto where it's kind of the same notion of buy low, sell high. So for me, if there's a team that I'm, I'm really high on that goes through a prolonged stretch where they're struggling, um, I'm going to look to take out like buy shares in them. And that's what I've done with the Colorado Avalanche this year. I'm, I'm pretty heavily exposed on Colorado to win the Stanley Cup, um, at really good numbers, eight to one, 15 to two. Like these are numbers that don't exist anymore, but, Colorado went through a period where they had, uh, you know, multiple players on their team were out due to COVID. They had significant injuries. They had their starting goaltender, Philip Grubauer, injured for a point this year. So they kind of suffered from some external circumstances. But when that team is healthy, which you would expect for the playoffs, that's a really good team. So for me, I was buying low on them quite a bit. Uh, the Boston Bruins would have been another team where people kind of wrote them off at one point and they went through, um, a stretch where both Tuka Rask and Yaroslav Halak, their starting goalie and backup goalie, were out for the course of three weeks, a month, uh, if not more than that, um, where I was buying some stock in Boston. So that's kind of like my advice to anyone is don't get caught up in the now. Like your your goal, especially when you're betting a Stanley Cup future, is to predict what's going to happen in the future. So um, you can end up picking off some good prices just based off of some short-term recency bias. Um, so that's, that's sort of what I look for around this time. You're not really going to get much value, like things like, you know, Nikita Kucherov coming back for Tampa Bay in the playoffs. Um, it's kind of already priced into the market and things of that nature. So it's probably not the best time, but I think this applies to any sport in general over the course of the year. You can probably pick off some decent prices when good teams are, are struggling. Yeah, and I think at this point, anybody who's been listening from the start can tell that you clearly have a lot of insight to share that can be very valuable when it comes to betting. 
And I'd like to also get into another area where I think you're one of the best voices of reason, and that would be betting media. And a current example that comes to mind would be the frenzy over Aaron Rodgers' future as we record this Friday, May 7th. Um, do you see any value on betting boards based on speculation about him possibly going to Denver? Maybe he'll still end up staying after all this. And with a situation like this, how do you recommend as we're just bombarded with speculation in the media, we try to isolate the signal from the deafening noise that's out there? Yeah, it's difficult to do so um, because of the way that the market has changed over the course of the years where you just don't really have the opportunity to wait on this information anymore. Like as soon as, um, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Mark Schlereth that tweeted that the, the Broncos were pretty close to a deal for Aaron Rodgers. My first reaction is, I guess, evaluate the source. In some cases, you're really not going to know whether it's speculation or if there's truth to it or not. For me, I thought that there was probably a pretty high degree of certainty that he had some sort of information and this just wasn't coming out of right field. And then it's quickly bet as much as I can on Denver before the market catches on or sportsbooks catch on. Um, and this is very different than five, six years ago when uh, those numbers would hang around for like hours. I actually will always remember um, the day that Teddy Bridgewater I guess, tore, tore his ligaments in his knee during practice, um, for the Vikings. Um, and the Vikings win total, which I think was eight and a half that season, it stayed on the board for hours after the fact, where you could just bet Vikings under, uh, over and over. Some sports books ended up canceling those wagers, which is funny because they actually did end up going over and sports books would have won those bets, but that kind of information, like you didn't have to act immediately, uh, back in the day. Now, Within 10, 15 minutes, the Broncos Super Bowl odds are adjusted from 75 to 1 or 80 to 1 down to 20 to 1, pretty much across the board, or it's pulled. So um, the, the first thing is evaluate the source. If you think that there is possibly some, you know, uh, some shreds of truth to the source there, you got to act as quickly as possible because we're in a situation now where you're not going to get a good number on Denver regardless at this point. Um you're not you, the other teams that he are has been rumored to be traded to or has apparently given a a list um which i think are the raiders and can't remember the other team as well i think it was o- the oakland <laughs> vegas denver and i believe san francisco is on that list but we can pretty much cross them off right so you're starting to see some money trickle in on the raiders as well who i i was looking at divisional odds uh, and kind of scratching my head, how are the Raiders priced the same as the Chargers within the division? Because I think the Chargers are significantly better than the Ra- Raiders. And it's because some semblance of news is priced into that already. So um, it, it's one of those things where uh, it's it's evolved over time, but it's the market now is very much race to react to this information. And if you're not quick, you're not going to get it. And that's fine. Then just don't bet it. Don't, don't, don't bet a price that has moved significantly already on speculation. Uh, at that point, you might as well wait till the confirmation happens, right? Yeah. I think sometimes the best bet you can make is to pass. If there's, you know, if you're late to the best of the number and you're just not sure, it's, you know, the saying goes, it's more valuable to pass on a winning play than to force your hand on a loser. I mean, if you pass on a winner, Let's say that would have won $100. Well, if you force the play on a loser, standard minus 110 odds, then you're losing 110. So keeping that frame of mind can be really valuable to long-term bankrolls. And that Teddy Bridgewater example, I hadn't thought of that for quite a bit, but um, I 
share a pretty similar memory because when that happened, I had one book that had a pretty inflated Vikings win number. So I was able to get the under on that. And it seemed like a slam dunk at the time. It did end up coming through, but just barely that got awfully scary, which I think further reinforces the point not to force the issue. If things have already shifted, then, you know, if the market's ahead of you, that's okay. Just stand pat. Um, also looking at other options on the menu, if you can do it without getting booted or getting a bet canceled, um, things in that scenario, like Vikings not to make the playoffs where books are offering those numbers or for Denver, when the Rogers speculation came out again, that that has long since moved, but right as the draft was starting, I did see some numbers available that were still fairly unadjusted on not only the regular season win total, but to win the AFC West, to win the AFC, to win the Super Bowl. So sometimes one or two numbers might come off the board everywhere and some might remain. Um, sometimes the number might be unbettable at one book, but still highly bettable at another. So if you could put in the time and the work to shop around a little bit, you still need to be quick, but those opportunities still might be out there. Overall, though, um, totally agree at the point where if it's just you know, if it's not looking like there's value, then there's no need to force the action. Yep, completely agree with that. I mean, we, we live in in the, this age of, of FOMO, which is fear of missing out for anyone who doesn't know. And um, that's, I, I mean, I, I see why people just want to get on board, especially with the amount of social media stuff and people posting that they've been in these cryptos that have, you know, went to the moon and people jump in when it's too late. Uh, I completely get it. I mean, I would, I'd be lying to you if I didn't experience some semblance of FOMO in my life or even in recent weeks as well. But you're right. It's a, it's a pretty good lesson to be learned there that sometimes you just got to take a step back and say, you know, has this information already been accounted for? And if so, it's okay to let it pass. I mean, you don't have to jump on, um, jump on a bet just because all your friends are on it at a much better number. It's not profitable to do that in the long run. Yeah. Well, sticking with betting media and maybe a slight pivot to your own personal experience, I know that you've done a lot in the media space. I think of a couple of podcasts. I know this is not what your experience is limited to, but what comes to mind for me, let's say Circles Off and the Matchbook NFL podcast. A couple key differences. Circles Off, you're a co-host. There's, I think, the freedom for probably a pretty loose structure. You can do some interviews, sometimes just go deep on insights on various topics, whereas on the Matchbook NFL podcast, you're an expert analyst. Um, you know, there's a pretty tight structure, about one hour for pretty time-sensitive info, mainly best bets of the week. That said, a common thread would be giving insightful, engaging, thought-provoking information. Um, maybe there's picks involved, but again, a lot more about the process and that teach a man to fish type of approach. And to that end, how would you describe your approach to doing these types of shows as well as any other betting media that you've got plenty of experience with? Yeah, they're both very different. Um, circles off, like you mentioned, I'm the co-host and I can kind of structure things however I, I want to. There's a lot more flexibility. And actually, oftentimes, we end up talking about things that we didn't even plan for um, beforehand, just because that's where the conversation leads us. Whereas the Matchbook pod, I'm more of an analyst in that situation. It's very rigid and structured, right? It's like a one-hour segment. We're going to hit on these games. Um, so for those, you know, for that type of thing, I, I make sure I'm just really prepared. Uh, for each game that we're going to talk about. Uh, It's work that I'd ordinarily be doing myself anyways because I'm betting the NFL, so it's not like this added digging deeper into games or anything like that. I really don't have to do much aside from that, but um, it's more structured. I know what I'm getting into. I make sure I'm prepared for those games. Uh, Circles off, yeah, it's it's been a fun project, but it's it's just different in that, I mean, obviously there are times where we have guests on where, 
we can just take the conversation wherever we want want to go uh, and the same with whatever else we may be talking about so uh, i do enjoy doing both i probably can't give you like um i don't i don't like one better than the other i kind of like both aspects of it but they're kind of completely different in terms of preparation like i can follow up this interview right now and start a circles off podcast um without doing any prep and just kind of talk and banter for an hour and turn it into something that is meaningful and valuable. Uh, whereas I probably have to spend a little bit more time preparing in, in for a guest role on something different. But, um, I guess the, the, the end goal for me in, in everything I do is to try to educate in some way without giving away too much, so to speak. Um, and I'm pretty comfortable drawing that line somewhere because I don't want to give away every single thing that I do. I don't want somebody being able to reproduce what I do. Uh, but I'm, I'd like other people to win or at least find value in, in what I'm bringing to the table and not just be one of those talking heads. That's not really contributing. Yeah. And I think something that you do really well, that ties right into educating people who listen, wherever you make your media appearances would be bringing transparency and accountability to the table. And I'd like to dig into that a little bit because I think this space could use as much of those two things as we can possibly get. And one recent example would be um, you called out something that Jonathan Coachman did. I'd argue you were right to call this out and bring it to people's attention. It was some pretty precarious betting advice. Could you describe what you saw there and why you thought it was important to speak up in the first place? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I will you know, preface this by saying that uh, it's always a challenge for me in this space, whether or not to call someone out that where I feel that they've either un- I either had bad intentions or they've misled people. It's uh, I try to stay away from that as much as I can because you can go down, I guess, a dark path, so to speak, if you're just con- consistently fighting that battle. It's a very negative space to be in, and it's not what I, I like to be in. The specific example you're talking about is um, I saw a video come across my Twitter timeline, which was um, Jonathan Coachman, the coach, um, and... I don't know who his co-host was, but his co-host is very unfamiliar with the betting landscape. And they were doing a segment, uh, giving out UFC picks for, uh, DraftKings. And the one thing about giving out picks is I would, I can never condone somebody telling someone else to go and bet something without there actually being actual odds on the event itself, because that's what matters the most. Uh, I tell people this all the time, but when I bet on the NFL, I'm, I'm, I would bet either side in the game, depending on what the price is of the game. And that should be the focus for anyone in anything that they're betting on. There should always be some price where you will take either side. And when you tell somebody, go and bet this fighter to knock out the other guy, and you don't know what that price is, you're delivering, in a sense, misinformation because, or setting them, setting them down this line of, um, it's a it's a path that they shouldn't be going down essentially. So I took offense to that, um, and I was kind of going to let it go, but he responded to me immediately, and like kind of challenged me on it a little bit, which I don't take kindly to either. And that's something that for anyone who knows me, I'm not going to be like I'm going to try to get the last word in as much as possible. So it was this back and forth, but just in general, you can't give picks without knowing what the odds are. And it's a pretty simple concept. And if someone is doing that, um, then I would just completely dismiss their opinion and move on elsewhere. 
Yeah, I appreciate the caveat of not really seeking out the opportunities to call people out because that can get pretty toxic pretty quickly. But to your point, when something, you know, might cross a certain line, not looking to, you know, cancel somebody or, you know, destroy their career in any way, but just call things to light that can really help a lot of the betters probably pretty early on in their betting careers who could be seeing this from what they deem to be a pretty authoritative source. Now, on my end, I could do a better job of not making it so negative. Like the whole idea is trying to take something and turn it into a positive or turn it into something to help educate the population. Um, anyone who wants to say that I do stuff like that for clout and I'm trying to like build off of the coach's social following and hoping to get him to engage, that's absolutely not the reason. And, and anyone who says that doesn't know me, I, you know, I do reflect on these things and there was probably an opportunity for me to take you know, not be so, uh, I guess not attack and, and sort of just call to light what was happening in that situation there without having to put him on the defensive. So I get that because if I put myself in his shoes and he probably either doesn't understand these concepts or he's choosing to ignore them, either way, that's only going to end in conflict with me, right? It's very unlikely that the way that I term that or the way that I, I went into that rant, he's going to come back and say, you know what? you're right, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, or I should have done it this way. It's going to almost always be a defensive approach. So I'm cognizant of that as well, and there's better ways that I can go about it. But ultimately, I have this inner struggle where I just get so tilted by seeing stuff like that sometimes that I don't even take the time to think. It's just more of a reactionary impulse. I need to set the record straight here. Um, and for me, that's a personal thing that I'm, I'm going to try to work on, but it's not something that I'm going to change in terms of calling people out whenever they're misleading the public on, on especially uh, gambling information. Yeah. That reminds me a lot of things I've been hearing lately from Adam Grant, uh, who's a pretty famous author. And I think one of the youngest tenured professors ever at university of Pennsylvania's Wharton school. Um, he is, um, lately been on tour promoting a recent book called Think Again, and it's trying to, I think, get people to embrace a more open-minded approach to things and understanding that, um, in his words, if you're a logic bully, that's not going to win people over to your side, even if you're so clearly right. And um, along similar lines, I, I recently read a book that's been out for a while, but it's called Scorecasting, and there's a note near the end where they kind of busted the myth of momentum, and they cited, um, I think, one of the most brilliant you know, behavioral economists, there's been Amos Tversky, who said, I've had, I think he said, hundreds of arguments about this. I've won every single one, and I have changed zero minds. It's that mindset of, you know, you can be 100% right and still trying to, to your point, get to, okay, but what's the net outcome going to be? And I think that there's a very fine line there. And it can be really tricky, especially on Twitter, where there's so little room for nuance. But at some point, you know, maybe you're not going to get it out perfectly and sway everybody with what you say, but is it a net positive compared to doing nothing? I think so. And that's the reason that I do do, do it. I mean, I'm, I'm, about, I'm all about being real. Like I try to be myself. I really do. I, I say to my own detriment sometimes things in a, in a manner that I shouldn't say, uh, but I have a following of people that appreciate it. At least I get messages after I do stuff like that in my, my DMs, like, I'm glad you called him out. I'm glad you said this. Or I even got a few uh, um few weeks ago when I posted that saying that, can you explain this to me further? Which I did. And I, I've now at least 
educated someone on what's going on here who might have not understood that. And that's valuable to me. Like it actually means something uh, as much as I can come across as being uh, arrogant at times or, um, you know, looking for conflict. It's, it's not really my nature. Um, and I do have a heart and like when I do get messages like that, it's, I, I mean, I, I, I enjoy getting messages like that. It makes me feel like it's worthwhile when I do things like that. Uh, but then there's this other side of people who don't know me who might have just come across that and this is their first interaction with me or seeing, uh, you know, coach quote, quote tweet me, which will look, which looks like an attack. And they're, they're right to come back at me and say like, you know, stop using him to, to try to boost your clout and whatever. So I'm, I'm still learning. Um, it's, it's cliche and like cheesy, but, um, I do use these as learning experiences. I, and I don't just say that, like legitimately, uh, I try to, it's not easy. I mean, I'm going to make the same mistakes regularly. It's just human nature. But for me, I do feel like this is valuable. And, um, uh, I, I don't think I would have the following, uh, I do right now if people didn't find value in, in what I'm preaching. Yeah. And something you've touched on a couple of times was trying to be mindful of not, you know, trying to use somebody else's clout to your own selfish benefit. I think it's great to be mindful of that and kind of flipping the tables. And another example that came up recently, there was a, a fun little competition involving Tortellini the tortoise. And <laughs> I would love to have you maybe describe this little betting competition with, with a quick, I guess, three-parter. One, is Tortellini your real pet tortoise? And number two, how would you explain this competition? And number three, what was the overall outcome? Tortellini is my real pet tortoise. Um, my wife bought him about 10 years ago. I'll never forget her bringing him to our condo in downtown Toronto at the time. And I was like, what are we going to do with this thing? And for about four or five years, I, I don't want to say I was miserable, but I didn't really like this animal because um, he didn't do a whole lot. He required a lot of work. And when we moved, um, into more, into the suburbs, we actually donated him to the local library. Um, so s sadly we did try to get rid of him. Uh, but he lived at the library for about five years where he became very popular for like children's learning. And he was just like this pet that people would go in and look at. And, uh, they had a lot of fun with it. Like they would do tortellini's picks at the library and, there'd be a section that were just like turtle and tortoise books and, and stuff like that. But COVID happened and the library's closing down and nobody has room for this tortoise in their houses uh, to take him home. There's no habitat for him. So they basically contacted us and they said, we don't know what to do. And I said, okay, we'll take him back. Uh, we built him an enclosure here and I've like bonded with this tortoise now. So he is actually a pet of mine. I will not never, I will not give him up. Uh, again, because now it's just like, uh, there's like this, uh, calm that I get from like feeding him and watching him every day. It's really weird, but it's very relaxing. It's almost like a meditation of sorts for me. So that is real. In terms of the contest, uh, there's this Ben the Better on, on Twitter. Um, we, you know, we widely joke about him being a, a, a poor better, um, kind of like the mush of, of Twitter betters. And he challenged me to, a betting competition. I hate betting competitions in general. So part of the reason that I hate them is for one, most of them are very short term. It's always like, oh, let's do a week of picks, a couple weeks of picks, which I described earlier 
about the variance in sports betting. Uh, I would never put my reputation on the line in a one week's worth of picks, like a 20 game sample size against anyone else, no matter who it is on the earth, because that have everything to lose in that type of situation. Um, and then, you know, secondly, it's, I don't like people seeing my picks. Like it's, um, it's weird, but there's a lot of nuances to betting professionally on sports. And I like to keep the sides that I'm on as quiet as possible. Um, just so people don't think I'm, I'm BSing or anything like that. But if I were to openly be posting my picks, it wouldn't be that hard for someone to potentially track down accounts that I'm betting into and now know that I'm betting that either I could lose those accounts or potentially somebody could end up tailing my action for free and disrupting the market by doing that. So there's a lot of downside to it. So I just basically came up with the, like, all right, you want to do a picks competition? Like you have to beat my pets in order, in order to, to face me. Uh, I really didn't have intent to face him if he did end up beating my tortoise and, and my dog back to back, but I probably would have, but, uh, luckily we didn't get there. Tortellini won, um, the competition. And what is the best part about it and what makes me laugh is Ben actually had like the best week that he had had for like half a year and still lost the competition, which is like, you couldn't write a better script for this guy who we call like the mush of, of Twitter. So um it was fun. It was just a fun thing. I didn't get anything out of it. No benefit. If anything, Ben received all the clout uh, and the Twitter following from it. Um But COVID was going on. There wasn't much to do. Like it was something that passed the time. Yeah. I think that ties back into that note from David Molinsky. It's so timeless, but it takes a full spectrum to make a proper life portfolio. I mean, sometimes we're trying to beat the market to the punch on an NFL opener. And sometimes we're saying if Rob Pozzola's pet tortoise can beat a guy who posts picks on Twitter. I'm, I'm shocked at how big it got though. I, I really am because I didn't think that many people would pay attention to it. And then I would look at the, the periscope views because I, I was live periscoping, uh, Tortellini's picks and they were doing like large numbers. Um, but again, I didn't, I didn't monetize this in any way. There was never any intent. Like I had some guy accusing me of, of, um, being on the payroll for like bet online or Bovada or whoever was posting odds for the event, like it, which is the most asinine thing ever, because this is not like some sort of high limit handle event where offshore sports books are collecting thousands and thousands of dollars in handle and they're going to pay me. like it made no sense, but um, that's just, I guess, social media in this day and age where everybody thinks that somebody has an ulterior motive. But the reality is I just didn't want to listen to him. I didn't want him to tweet at me anymore, calling me like a chicken or whatever. And I just said, okay, let's do it and let's have some fun with it. Yeah. Well, that was definitely entertaining. Um, I didn't know how to handicap it, so I can't claim to have made a bet when Bovada posted lines, but if nothing else, maybe some opportunistic marketing on their part too. And if it gave people some entertainment during an otherwise crazy time in all of our lives, then I think that's a pretty nice outcome. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see where there was a downside in this personally, like looking back on it now, it's not like people were getting hurt by betting large amounts of money on like a, a recreational event. Um, uh, it provided some entertainment value. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was just like a win for everyone. And um people seem to enjoy it quite a bit. 
if there was a, if there was someone who came out like behind on this, it would probably be me because I didn't realize how much time it would take on a daily basis to actually get this to happen. Like you have to get the tortoise to eat on command basically when you're starting the video. And luckily it worked out, but, um, every day I kind of had to deal with some sort of message about transparency. Like, you know, I, I, I tried to make it as transparent as possible. Um, so that it would, it would be clear that I wasn't making the tortoises picks, but it, uh, so I end up having to deal with a bunch of headaches that people will never even really know about on the side of people just accusing me of different things and having to change things in the video on a daily basis. Um, which I mean, it is what it is, but overall looking back on it, it was, it was actually pretty fun. Yeah. And for such a fun thing, it is interesting to see that you still had to take steps that would have been difficult to foresee just to kind of be transparent about the legitimacy of all of this. But I do think in an interesting way that could kind of be a bridge to the next topic I wanted to get into, which would be you teaming up with Betstamp, another big move, thinking about transparency and accountability in the space. And for the unfamiliar, Betstamp is a bet tracking platform and an odds comparison tool. And I know that the market seems to be getting a little bit crowded with some different bet tracking tools that are out there. So to start things off, I'd appreciate it if you could describe what Betstamp is and what makes it different. Yes. Um, so Betstamp is interesting. Um, it's a utility for sports bettors, if I'm going to wrap it up into one thing, but it can provide different utilities depending on how you bet on sports. So for one, it's a great line shopping tool. It's very easy for someone to basically look around at which sports book is offering me the best price on this game. And you can set up, set it up to be your sports books. You can set it up to be sports books that are regulated in your state. There's a lot of options to choose from in order to personalize it towards you. So, um, that's first and foremost kind of one use case for it, but I'm a, I'm a firm believer in line shopping and having as many outs as you possibly can. Like even if you're not a winning better and in the long run, you're just kind of a coin flipper, you will, you're doing yourself a great disservice if you're not line shopping in some capacity and trying to get the best prices possible. And if I could just like draw it back to a real life situation, but if you went to a grocery store and there was, you went to the chips aisle and you had the same bag of chips, literally the same bag of chips on one shelf and one was two bucks and the rest were three bucks. There's no way you would pick up one that's $3. You'd go to the cashier with one that's two. And I don't know why people don't apply that principle to sports betting, but it is quite literally the exact same thing. So it's a great line shopper. In terms of bet tracker, um, it's great for personal use. If you don't want to have a public profile, that's perfectly fine. Uh, I learn a lot through my bet tracking. It's something that I've preached on my own Periscopes before, and I've done segments on other shows before about bet tracking in general. But if you're not constantly looking at things and how you're performing in certain situations, you're probably going to have a lot of things slip through the cracks that go unnoticed where potentially you might be able to say to yourself, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really betting on this team a lot. Or when I'm betting in the morning, I'm losing these plays a lot. And you can go and react and try to figure out why that's happening. So it's a really good bet tracker. But why I really love it is we can quote unquote stamp plays and verify them. So for anyone who wants to publicly keep a record and they're using another app, and I'm not here to rag on other apps because 
I think the Action Network has a good app. I think Betsports has a good app. But in terms of authentically tracking someone, they can't be relied on because for an app like the Action Network, I can lose a bet and I can just go and delete it afterwards. And that's going to be my public profile or I can edit it. And the same thing with Betsports. Betsports is using a consensus line. It's like lines that somewhat exist, but they kind of don't. Whereas Betstamp is locking in a play and ensuring that at the time that it was locked in, it was actually available at a sports book. And the reason that that's important is one, people promote themselves using their record. So now this is a way for them to actually have a verifiable record, but also because Betstamp has a marketplace where people can buy and sell picks. Now, this is an interesting one because I'm not a proponent of buying or selling picks in general, but I'm very cognizant of the fact that it's going to happen regardless. Whether I spend the rest of my life arguing with people about buying picks or not, there is going to be a large amount of people in the industry that are looking for plays. And the reality is that most of them are going to be led astray. They're going to buy picks from some sort of handicapper that's promoting a short-term trend, 10 and 0 in the last 10, 10 MLB plays. Um, people that fudge their records, that don't keep honest record keeping. So now what the bet stamp marketplace is at least doing is if you are in the market to buy picks and you're set on that, you are buying them from someone who actually has a verifiable record and you can dig through their play history to ensure that they are not misleading you in any way. Like I can go through anyone's plays. I can say, oh, this guy's a scammer because he's been betting a dollar a game and all of a sudden bet a hundred dollars a game, won that one, and now his record is inflated. You can't really do that on any other site. So it's a, a three-pronged utility, line shopper, um, bet tracker, and then an, what I'd like to consider an honest marketplace for buying and s- selling picks. Yeah, and across those three prongs, where would you say you personally use it the most? So for me, I, I'm not a picks buyer or seller. Um, I I have very sophisticated bet tracking in general, um, which is kind of automated as a professional. So I don't have a, a use for a bet tracker in general on any app. But in terms of line shopping, right now as a pro, every pro is going to use the Don Best screen, uh, which has its form of limitations. It obviously has every sports book, real-time odds. doesn't work a lot of the time uh, in general. And for me, that's great when I'm at my desktop and I'm you know, I'm grinding here. But if I'm sitting on a couch and I want to find a live line in a game or I want to see what's coming up in five minutes and I want to place a bet, I, I love the BetStamp app, stamp app in general. I think it's a great mobile utility, which doesn't really exist elsewhere, uh, or at least as user-friendly um, as, as it's been made. So... For me, I use it more for line shopping um, in general, but I'm on there every day. I love the layout, um, and it's part of the reason that I, I wanted to be partnered with this group because uh, it's co-founded by two professional bettors as well. Um, and frankly, uh, the three of us combined, I think what's most valuable to us is integrity and authenticity, uh, and I think we're looking to build this into something that just becomes the essentially the source of truth for people um, down, you know, a couple of years from now, my, my, my goal is that um, everyone who is promoting a record for themselves, whether that be on Twitter, uh, anyone in the media, anyone that's selling picks, I think that they should have a verified record. Um, or it, And if they don't, 
then they're going to probably suffer the wrath of me over the next couple of years, calling them out um, and to each their own. Maybe they don't find a use in that or don't believe in that, but that's uh, that's something that I firmly believe in. Yeah, and I think of certain types of bets that have been difficult to track on certain platforms over the years. Um, you know, there might be other bettors, myself included, who typically do things manually on a spreadsheet because it's tough to really get a holistic approach in any other one place. And I'm wondering what bets that might do in regards to bets beyond the basics. I know like sides, totals, money lines, the major sports, I assume that's, you know, no problem. But in the NFL, something like futures, when I, I was able to grab, you know, not at the peak, but a 66 to one on Denver to win the Super Bowl when the Rogers speculation broke and then the number fell off the board, reopened about 20 to one, as you mentioned earlier. A lot of props, be it the draft, the regular season, the Super Bowl, not really available everywhere. So sometimes you're just finding a good number where it's only available at one book. Also, I have been fortunate to maintain a couple of the precious few books that, that still offer minus 110 on two team six point teasers in the mm-hmm. NFL. And I know that, you know, that's, you know, laying minus 110 versus minus 120 can make all the difference in the long run. So when there are bets like that, that might not be the basics. Are there also the ability to currently track some of those or are things like that, you know, on the roadmap for the future of bets, Dan? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the end goal here is to have the most versatile, you know, odd set that we possibly can provided that we can verify it in some capacity. Now, we do give people the option of putting in their own custom bets. So just because we don't have something on the app doesn't mean that you can't put in your own custom bet. With that said, it's not going to be verified, but it's still going to appear in your own personal record keeping. And then down the road, there are plans for us to allow you to actually publish that record and we'll have your verified record and then everything. So there is going to be some stuff that we can't pull in real time, and that's always going to be the case. But we've increased the props offerings for sure for all the sports, whether that's game props, player props. We've been able to really expand that. The next goal is going to be to expand our sport offering. Uh, we obviously want to move into soccer, which is a quite a big market, MLS and EPL especially. Get into other football leagues, the Canadian Football League being one, um, WNBA being another, which starts in a week or so. So constantly working towards expanding the offering um to as as much as we possibly can the reality is uh i don't want to say that we're a startup i mean we are a startup but we're expanding you know we do have a pretty good development team they're just limited by time is all that it comes down to time and resources just like any other company and you kind of prioritize from the top down but i mean all of our entire vision is to have exactly what you're describing where if you're able to bet it on some sports book, then we're offering it and we can verify it. And we just have to go about finding solutions along the way to, to make sure that we can get everything in the app. Sure. And something else I wanted to touch on while we're speaking about BetStamp beyond the app itself would be your personal connection to it. And I think you posted a really nice video announcement explaining the decision. You touched on the COVID landscape wreaking havoc on so many lives. I know it's not just any one person's, but, you know, this being a chance to maybe break up the day-to-day and add a new sense of purpose. And you touched on mental health, which, again, I know we also talked about it earlier in a slightly different context, but I think that can be, you know, really important as much as it can be uncomfortable to talk about at times. But with those types of things in mind, I would love it if you could add any other context behind your decision to partner with the team at BetStamp. Yeah, I mean... Like I said, with the audience that I have, I always try to be as honest and transparent as possible. But I also try to do that with myself. 
Um, like you, you get to a point where sometimes for me, and I, I'm, I can say this pretty openly, but sometimes you just struggle to find meaning in what you're doing. Uh, and this is just a personal thing for me, right? There's a lot of professionals that they love what they do. They can get up every morning with passion and get out of bed at 6 a.m. and sit in front of a computer all day. And, and that's their thing. Um, for me, it's not. I mean, I, I like it at times. I find it miserable at times as well. So for me, I'm trying to live the best life that I can. Um, but I want to keep things real as well. And, and for me, I do view this as a good opportunity in terms of I think the app has potential. I think I can help contribute and grow it into something that is large. And um, I'm fine saying that openly, but you see the Action Network selling for $240 million this past week. And I'd like to be able to do the same with BetStamp one day. I'd like to turn it into a utility that is so widely used and provides so much value to people that we're able to monetize off it and make a lot of money off of it. And that's something that excites me. I'm driven by money, but it's it's just a combination of factors for me at all times. And um, I'm always looking for challenges. One, uh, I like to diversify. Uh, that's just something that I like, you know, it's part of, I guess, looking for a challenge. Um, I'm money driven. Um, but I think this is something that it's just what really, really interests me in general, uh, because almost I don't want to lump everybody into one, but the vast majority of people in this space are either looking to make a quick buck or um, not really providing real utility to the user, the end user. Like a lot of affiliates are popping up in the space now, which will quickly send you to a sports book and they'll produce some content that you might feel is valuable because you don't know any better. And I'm not talking specifically about you, but a recreational better. And that's not my end goal, right? I, I want... I want to give something people that is actually valuable and maybe it's not going to turn them into a winning better, but maybe, maybe you're going to lose less. And like, that's kind of mission accomplished for me. So it's, it's accumulation of all these things. Um, and I, it weighed on me for a while, frankly. I mean, it's not something that I, I made the decision overnight. It's something that I had conversations with the bet stamp guys for months. Um, and then we just kind of made, made something work, but I, I'm really excited about it. Um, and I, I do feel rejuvenated since, uh, since joining. So, um, I, I think so far it's been a positive for me. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I appreciate all the information you've shared about the process. I'm excited to see what's in store for you guys. Um, I guess one more question related to this note. Uh, what type of impact, if any, might this have on your presence across Twitter or podcasts or other pieces of the betting media landscape and I want to acknowledge this is coming from somebody who has selfishly benefited from a lot of that presence over the years. So I imagine some other betters and followers of yours might have the same question. Yeah, I'm hoping people won't notice an impact, um, to be honest with you, aside from the fact that I, I am trying to grow brand awareness for BetStamp. Like, that's not a secret. Um, it's part of the reason that they wanted me to join the team as well, for obvious reasons. Like, this is not going to come as a surprise to anyone. So... Yeah, you might see me introduced on a uh, a podcast um, as a member of BetStamp or wearing a BetStamp t-shirt or promoting the product. And that's probably going to be the only real difference. Um, I know a lot of people want, want to know about the NFL periscopes um, for next year. And that's been a question I've been getting a lot. The reality is that's going to be a personal decision. It's not going to have anything to do with BetStamp. It's going to be whether or not I want to do them or not. Um, and I wasn't going to do them last year. I got hit with a lot of feedback from people that kind of pushed me 
into it, so to speak, where um, I felt like I almost needed to in a, in a weird way. But, you know, the, the reality is I'm, I'm very, I'm a very real and honest person. I, I don't think anyone would even notice the difference. Like if, if, if someone didn't watch my YouTube video uh, with my announcement, they probably in the last couple of weeks have not even realized that I'm, I'm partnered with Betstamp in any capacity. And that's kind of the way I want it to be. I just want to keep going down the path that I've always been going down. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, I know we're a little more than an hour in right now and I appreciate your time. I want to be mindful of it. So I'd like to move into a couple of wrap up questions that could be more or less rapid fire to uh, bring things full circle with a lot of the betting insight that you shared off the top of this conversation. Is there, you know, maybe one or two things that come to mind when I, I would think about the biggest piece or pieces of betting advice that you would have to aspiring bettors? Who I would, <laughs> this is funny because I mean, the reality is I would say don't expect to win. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people approach sports betting as something that immediately they think they're going to see results. And I don't know that the average person realize, realizes what it takes to actually win and what it takes to sustain this for a living. Because you have to win. You actually have to be able to beat the market. But then you're going to face all sorts of issues on top of that, whether it's liquidity, you know, getting your accounts shut down. There's a lot that goes into it. So. First and foremost, go in with the mindset of this is not a guarantee that I'm going to win because most people make that mistake and they overextend themselves uh, or they risk capital that they can't afford to lose. And the reality is over 99% of sports bettors are going to lose. That's just fact. It's not. Um, whereas if you ask people, do you win or lose betting on sports? You probably get close to a 50-50 answer when it's you know, completely opposite of that. So uh, that's the, the biggest piece of advice is it's, it's serious. Like it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of, um, of, of effort um, in order to eventually beat these markets. Yeah. I think that kind of perspective can really help keep things in a healthier place from again, whether that's mental health or the health of somebody's bankroll from the outset. So definitely agree with that. And from a media standpoint, what would you say might be your biggest piece of advice to aspiring betting content creators? It's probably a piece of advice I would give to myself even five, six, seven years ago, uh, which is just be willing to learn. You don't know everything. And I think it's very easy for people to get defensive when somebody comes at them and says, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Or even if it's not that tone and it's more of an offensive tone, there's still probably something to be learned from that or something to investigate. And I think what you end up getting is people that are very dismissive of ideas that are foreign to them. Um, so you see that a lot in the space right now, or at least I see that a lot in the space. You probably don't know everything and you should be like loot use what other people are saying to you as learning opportunities rather than just completely dismissing it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know everything about sports betting. I actually learn it's cliche, but I learn something new pretty regularly or, or pick up on something, um, that I might not have known. And I think if you just approach things in that manner of, I don't know everything and I can use this as a learning opportunity, you'd be much better served to create content in the long run. Yeah. 
Well said. Well, I'd like to throw one more question your way, and this will bring in the other pillar of props and hops. I know that the Toronto area has a, a pretty quickly progressing beer scene, and to that end, what would you say might be your favorite beer to drink, or if you have any favorite beer styles so that you can unwind and, and maybe pair some good beer with some good bets? Yes. Um, I, I'm, I am a beer drinker. Um, it is my beverage of choice. Um, I prefer IPAs, but I'm not, I'm not like a IPA supremacist, so to speak, where like to each their own, right? Like everybody has their own taste buds. Some things taste good to certain people and they don't taste good to other people. And that's just the reality of it. I'm not going to put down like loggers or pilsners or anything. And I'll, I'll drink like a, a cold lager on a summer day and per- be perfectly fine with it. But for the most part, I do like to drink IPAs. Um, Lagunitas IPA is probably my go-to and, and my favorite in general. Uh, but since COVID has been happening, uh, I've been sampling a lot more of, of local craft breweries, um, uh, and really kind of expanding my horizons. There's actually a really good application called Untapped. Um, which I'm not sure if you've mm-hmm. heard about, but like me and my friends yes. kind of got on it at the beginning of COVID so that we could all see what each other were drinking and giving recommendations to one another. Um, so I haven't really like, I haven't really had a go-to for a long time. I've been experimenting, but there's, um, there's a brewery not too far from here called Great Lakes Brewery, um, which has this IPA called Octopus Wants to Fight IPA. Um, it's slightly fruity, citrusy, very smooth. It's like a six, six and a half percenter. It's fantastic. Like really, really good. And that's going to be a regular for me going forwards. Uh, and then lately the weather has been getting better here. It's a sunny day behind me. Um, I've been actually expanding into ciders a little bit more as well. Mm. Um, I'm not a big fan of ciders because either I find them too sweet or too dry. Uh, but there is a, um, a brewery in British Columbia called Okanagan, I believe, that has a really, really good pear cider, which I tried recently, which is like the first in a long time that has kind of blended the sweetness with the dryness where it's it just really, really works for me. Um, so I can see myself going through quite a bit of those in the uh, in the summer. I think it's called Harvest Pear. It is fantastic. Yeah, well, your approach to beer seems just about as nuanced and professional as your approach to betting. So that was great. I'm going to have to see if I can find you on Untapped, and, and maybe we could do a little wishful drinking between what you're getting your hands on out in Toronto and what I'm able to get. I know we're kind of swimming in riches out in L.A., and I loved your point about not being an IPA supremacist. I like to think that I could claim the same. That's my favorite style as well. And definitely over the last year plus during the pandemic, California has loosened a lot of restrictions around distribution and beer shipping, and I've been able to get some of the best IPAs that I've ever had delivered right to my door. But at the same time, I like to think that I would just as soon snap my fingers and be able to safely, without any worries, go to a big gathering with my father-in-law back on the East Coast and just count some natty lights. Like, that can be just as fun as anything else. So there's a time and place for everything. Um we're lucky to be near some awesome beer, but I love the appreciation for anything and everything in the right environment. The only thing that I don't like is when people put down another style of beer. Like I'm not an IPA supremacist, but when someone comes to me and says, how can you possibly drink that? Or, you know, 
this is garbage or you must not be able to taste. And it's like, I, I like hoppy beers. Like that's just what, what my, you know, my taste buds. Yeah, that's your palate. That's my palate. And it's like, I, 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 I people get so, and it's not just beer. It's, and, and it's like modern this day and age, so to speak, where people get so defensive, like the extremes, right? It's like polar opposites. You can't be in the middle of something and be like, ah, it's okay. Like it doesn't work for me, but I can understand why it works for you. It's like, you got to love it or you got to hate it. Uh, and that's the only thing that really bothers me is like when people are like, how do you drink IPA? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, uh, I mean, it's my preference, right? Yeah. And I, I can really, I almost always feel trapped in the middle. I, I have kind of lamented to my wife, especially over this past year that it seems so often that people view anything different than their viewpoint as a threat when in reality it's simply different and that's okay. And also with IPAs, as you were talking about getting questioned about how you could possibly drink that stuff, I think it might also be worth noting that this isn't the late nineties anymore. It was the IBU wars and it was, Oh, like how resinous and sticky can we make this to rip the enamel off your teeth? A lot of the best (laughs) IPAs now are, much more balanced and you might get some pine and, you know, maybe a little grassy or earthy, but also a ton of citrus and tropical fruit. I think they've gotten a lot milder, a lot more balanced. And because of that, a lot more approachable to everyone. I would totally agree with that. I I, I think naturally I do gravitate, gravitate towards the more citrusy forms of IPAs. Um, there's actually, uh, I'll give, I'll give a shout out to another local brewery, but there's um, a craft brewery around here called flying monkeys and they have a, they have a IPA called Juicy Ass, Juicy Ass IPA, which is, it, it's great. Like it's just a, um, I think someone who, who doesn't really appreciate IPAs would probably be able to drink it because it has more of that, that fruity tropical flavor to it. Um, and, and that is my personal preference, but I can go the hardcore nine, 10% bone shaker IPA, like really rattle me to my core type of thing as well. And, um, and I'm a big fan of that sometimes as well. Yeah, man. All right. Well, after these last few minutes, I'm going to have to try to see if there's a way for us to, uh, find an occasion worthy of, uh, some, you know, some good betting and some good beer to enjoy some of this together. Cause I think we're, we're speaking the same language there. And I'd really like to thank you, Rob, for your time over the last hour plus. Um, I'd like to take a moment to plug what you're doing so people can follow your work and, and really connect with you on Twitter at Rob Pizzola. Also the circles off podcast, the bet app. Is there anything I'm missing or anything you'd like to add? No, that's it. I mean, uh, circles off. We do a weekly podcast. It's, it's centered around sports betting education. That is the goal of the podcast. So if anyone wants to check it out, they can on, on Spotify or on, uh, on iTunes and then, uh, obviously bet stamp, which, um, is an app I'm, I firmly believe in will help make you a better, better in some capacity. Uh, you can download it, uh, both on Android and iOS. And there's actually a web version that will be launching next week as well. Um, so check it out. I mean, it's not for ed- everyone, but I do believe in the long run, you will find some utility in it. Awesome. Well, once again, Rob, thanks for your time. It was an honor getting to do this. And I look forward to following your journey with Betstamp and everywhere else that your voice of reason can be heard. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Thanks again to Rob for joining the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Rob Pizzola. I'd also encourage you to check out the Circles Off podcast as well as the Betstamp app. 
While you're at it, I'd also appreciate it if you could follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts, and friendly reminder that a quick rating and review would also be greatly appreciated if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to keep the conversation going, I'd be happy to connect on Twitter at MLandis18 and on Instagram at Props and Hops. I'd appreciate any thoughts you have on this conversation as well as any topics you'd like to hear covered on the show. And if you'd be interested in a write-up on the highlights from this conversation with Rob, you'll be able to find that over at Dimers.com, where if you're looking to enter the NHL betting market, you can also find a rundown of some of the best promo codes for sportsbooks in states where wagering is legal. And I'll drop a link to that rundown in the show notes. All right, that'll do it for this episode of Props and Hops. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next week. Until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, And let's be well.